All right. Well, hey, good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome here to the Medina East Campus of uh, Grace Church as we are continuing uh, kind of in our second week in the series that we started last week and just this incredible Old Testament book, uh, the book of Amos. And of course, if you're just kind of jumping in with us or if you if you missed last week, uh, we said, man, this book, the book of Amos is one of those books of the Bible that is oftentimes overlooked. Uh, it is one of those books that is it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit uh, obscure. Many of us maybe have never really read the book of Amos, and yet we said, man, this, this book, this book of the Old Testament, is actually incredibly relevant to us in so many ways. It's actually chillingly relevant to us in so many different ways, and so we're kind of studying this book together, uh, diving into the book of Amos. Uh, I do just want to say, kind of like Steve mentioned a moment ago, uh, if you are a guest with us here today, if you're just joining us for the first time, I do want to extend a real special welcome to you. Uh, what you might not know about Grace Church, if you are newer here, is that Grace Church is actually a multi campus church. And so Grace Church actually exists in seven different locations. We have seven different campuses. Uh, there are five campuses that are kind of in the greater Akron area here. And then we also have two uh, campuses that are down in Atlanta, Georgia. Those are relatively new for us as well. And so we're a multi-campus movement. And this campus, the campus you're sitting in, we actually started about five years ago. In fact, we will collectively turn five years old uh, this coming December. And so it was back in December 2012 that the Medina East Campus for la first launched. And, uh, and the reason I tell you that is because uh, when we first started this campus, my, my wife and I and uh, an incredible team of people from some of our other campuses at Grace Church and some folks that were at an existing church here, uh, when we did that about five years ago, my wife and I, we found out we were coming here. At the time, we were living in Akron. Uh, we were working at a campus in Akron, and we, we, we knew that if we were going to come out here to Medina, we wanted to be part of the community. And so we started that whole process of trying to find a house and trying to move over here. And, uh, and without getting into to too, to too many of the details, uh, for several different reasons, that process for us of moving from Akron to Medina took a really long time. Uh, it took us a couple years to actually make that transition. And I think that in that process, when we were kind of uh, house hunting, we probably looked at the better part of maybe 50 houses as we kind of went around. So just a ton of different houses. And if you've ever been through that process before, if you've ever been a person who has been house hunting, maybe you're doing that right now, uh, you know that that process can be, it's fun in some ways. Um, it's also frustrating in other ways, especially if you've done it for a long time. And it can also be really interesting. It can be kind of a weird process because you're going into other people's houses and you see some, just frankly, some weird, weird stuff. Uh, there's some weird smells that you're not used to. And uh, you get exposure just to, to a whole bunch of different ways that people live. And I, I remember um, as we were going through this process, there was this one house in particular that we, were, that we were wanting to look at. And I'll never forget this house because it was one of the most bizarre situations I'd ever heard of uh, in the house hunting process. And so I remember that one, one time, uh, one day I was looking at uh, one of the real estate websites, looking for different houses in the Medina area. And there was this house that showed up in my search browser there that uh, had kind of dropped into my price range. And so it was new, new to me. So that this house came up. I was like, oh, I've never seen this house before. And I clicked on it and I started looking at the pictures. And I, and I, I saw it. I thought, man, this is an awesome house. This is a really nice house. And I was shocked at how well-priced it was. It's like, man, this is a really well-priced house. And I thought, man, it's been on the market for a long time, and they've reduced the price several times, which should have been an indication to me. But I was like, oh, this looks really awesome. And so, uh, sure enough, called my real estate agent, and I said, hey, I said, hey, I, uh, I found this really awesome house. I said, you think you could, you could uh, book us a showing? And he said, yeah, sure, you know. And so, sure enough, he kind of books us a showing. He calls me the next day, and he said, hey, uh, Tony, he said, I wanted to let you know uh, that we have you scheduled for a showing next week at that house that you were talking about. 
I said, that's awesome, thanks. And then he said, he said but I, I, need to, I need to make sure that you still want to look at it. And I was like, why, why would I not want to look at the house that I asked you to schedule a showing at? And he said, well, he said, I came across some information about that house. And he said, I am actually, by law, legally obligated to tell you something about that house. And I was like, my, my mind immediately, like, oh, great. You know, it's probably some kind of crime scene, something terrible happened there. Maybe there's some kind of structural damage or like flood damage or something. Or maybe something awful happened at that house. You know, maybe the previous owners were Michigan fans or something like that. And I was just like, so, what, what happened? You know, so I, I asked him, I said, what's wrong with the house? And he said, well, nothing's wrong with the house. So the house is actually, it's awesome. It's, it looks wonderful. He said, what I'm legally obligated to tell you is that the neighbor has a pet tiger. And I was like, uh, excuse me? And he said, uh, he, he kind of chuckled. He goes, yeah. He said, I am legally obligated to tell you that the neighbor has an exotic, dangerous animal as a pet. He has a pet tiger. And he said, so I don't know if you would still be interested in looking at the house or not. And so I started to think to myself, I thought, hmm, okay, let's just kind of do an analysis on this. I have three kids, three little kids. I'm going to be a pastor of this church, probably going to have people at our house, probably going to have life groups at our house. So I was like, you know what? Ixnay on the Igerte. Let's just go ahead and pass on that house. I don't think, he's like, I didn't think you'd want to, want, to, want to look at it. I was like, no, I don't think, I said, honestly, I don't know what scares me more. The thought of living next door to a tiger or the thought of living next door to the kind of person that would own a tiger. <laughs> right? It's just like a terrifying thought. Because honestly, think about it for a minute. Um, how many times have you heard the story or read the story or seen in the news of a person who tried to take a wild, dangerous animal and domesticate it for their purposes, and that animal has turned and attacked them. How many times have you heard that story? The answer, too many times. Like, way too many times. And maybe, maybe this is just my merciless heart, and that is very possible, and so if I'm wrong on this, then you can, you can correct. But a lot of times when I hear about stories like that, like when people have like a pet tiger or a pet lion, or when they try to tame like a chimpanzee or an ape and the thing turns on them, my first thought, and again, this is, this is probably a compassionless heart on my part, but my first thought is always, man, didn't you see that coming? Right, if, if you're trying to domesticate an animal that is genetically predisposed to kill you, like don't, you're, you're banking on the fact that 100% of the time that animal's never going to act according to its instinct. And I think that's a bad wager. And so I was thinking about this whole tiger thing and I just remember thinking to myself, I told my wife, I said, man, some things just shouldn't be domesticated. Some things you should just never do. Domesticate a dog, sure, that makes sense. They can be, they can be you know, cute and friendly. Domesticate a hamster, that's fine. There's not a lot of risk involved in that. Domesticate a cat, if you have to, if you're really into that kind of thing, I guess, right? But, man, there's just some things that shouldn't be domesticated. Now, why do I tell you that? What does that have to do with anything? Well, the reason I tell you that is because we're in this series, in the book of Amos, like I said, we started last week, and what we said is, we said that the, the message that, that Amos, this prophet, brings to God's people uh, would have been a wake-up call to God's people. We said Amos writes during a time when God's people, who were called by his name, God's people who were called to represent his heart, God's people who were called to represent his character, had drifted dangerously far from the heart of God. And they were completely unaware that it had happened. And so God sends this prophet Amos to, to deliver really an alarming, jolting, difficult, 
but important message as a wake-up call to God's people to return back to him. And here's what we said. We said that this message, the message of Amos, is not just a message for God's people back then. We said that God in his sovereignty, uh, he has preserved this book for us because it is written to God's people to be a wake-up call today. And, And so we said this. We said that if you are a follower of Jesus in this room, and by the way, I know that not everyone in this room is a follower of Jesus. Some of you might still be investigating that. But for those of us who follow Jesus, we said this book is very, very, very relevant to us. It is written to God's people today because we are just as susceptible in drifting in the same ways that God's people drift. We said the message of Amos is a jolting message. It's an alarming message. To be honest with you, this, this is going to hurt a little bit. It stings a little bit to read this book. Uh, in fact, when, when Amos begins his message, the way he depicts God right out of the gate from verse 2 when he starts his message, he depicts God as a lion who is roaring against his people. He depicts God as a lion who is ready to maul, who is ready to pounce. And it's alarming and it's jolting, but it's an important message. And so so here's what we said last week. We said the book of Amos is going to reveal to us seven undercurrents, is what we called them, of spiritual drift. In other words, we said Amos is going to show us seven ways that we drift spiritually. And it's going to help us to identify those ways because oftentimes it happens when we're unaware it happens, it happens oftentimes in a way that we're not even paying attention and we just find ourselves drifting. And we said that we drift in the same ways as God's people did back then. So we're going to identify those seven different drifts from God's heart. So today, we're going to talk about the first drift that we're going to see in the book of Amos, the first undercurrent of spiritual drift. And it's something that I call domesticating God. All right? and we're going to talk today about a dangerous drift that can happen with God's people, and that is that we can drift into... A domestication of God. Now, I know when I put that on the screen, for some of you, maybe that makes you kind of scratch your head a little bit. You're like, what does that mean? It's a little kind of, you know, it's intriguing, it's interesting. What does that even mean? So let me explain to you what I mean when I say that we, like God's people back then, we can drift into a domesticating of God. So let me show you. If you've got your Bibles, why don't you take them with me? And let's go ahead and turn together to Amos chapter 1. So let's return back to where we started last week, Amos chapter 1. One. So get your Bibles. Let's go there. If you did not bring a Bible with you here this morning, if you didn't bring your own, uh, that is no problem. You can just take one of our Bibles, simply take one of those, uh, the black Bibles in the chairs, turn to page 637. That's where you're going to find Amos chapter 1. So you can go ahead and find that. And then, of course, let me just also say, too, that if you don't own a copy of the Bible, like if you don't have your own copy of Scripture, We think it's really important that you have one, and we would want you to have one. And so you can just uh, take one of our Bibles, make that a gift from us to you. That's just our way of saying thanks for being here, and and we think it's important that you have a Bible. So Amos 1, as you're finding that, and I would encourage you, by the way, to actually have it in front of you, uh, to have this this chapter of the Bible in front of you, Amos chapter 1. As you're flipping there, though, let me just kind of remind everybody, this is the second week in the series. And so if you did miss last week, last week we kind of laid down an introduction We talked a little bit about the background of the book of Amos, and so if you would want to catch up on that, I think it would be to your advantage. You can listen to that on our uh, website, watch that. Um, You can also stream that on our podcast. All of that is for free. Okay, so Amos chapter 1, hopefully you're there. We're actually going to start off where we left off last week. We're going to start off in verse 2. So this is Amos, the beginning of Amos' message to God's people, the Israelites. And here's how Amos begins his message. He says this. Amos said, the Lord roars from Zion, and he thunders from Jerusalem, and the pastures of the shepherds dry up, 
and the top of Carmel withers. Okay, now let me just pause there again. This is actually a little bit of a recap from last week. We said that when Amos begins his message, he begins by depicting God as a lion. The lion is roaring. The lion is ready to maul. The lion is ready to pounce. We said this would have been alarming. This would have been shocking. This would have been unexpected, right? Would have been jolting. Then notice what he says, verse 3. This is what he says. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. Because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire on the house of Hazael that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into to exile to Kerr, says the Lord. Right, now, before we move on, let me just pause there for a second because my guess is as we read this, I know this is full of a bunch of people that we have never probably heard of. It's full of a lot of places that quite, men, quite, po- that quite possibly many of us have never heard of. It's referring to events that most of us are not familiar with. And, and I think that, 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 that when we read this, it, it's like it can be really kind of confusing and it can be really sort of frustrating. In fact, if you actually uh, took my, my advice last week, I kind of issued a homework assignment and I asked you to read the book of Amos. I don't know how many of you actually did that. I know some of you did. Now, some of you are raising your hand because you want to be recognized. So, yes, I see your hand, and I'm <laughs> proud of you for doing that, and that's a good thing. But if you actually read the book of Amos, my guess is, if you're anything like me, on your first pass, you probably were a little confused and a little frustrated uh, because it's full, like I said, it's full of all of these cultural references of places we've never heard of and people we've never heard of. And, and, and it seems like the only thing that's very clear in the book of Amos, when you just read it at first glance, is that God is really honked off. Like, that's the one thing that you know for sure. Like, God's real mad. And he doesn't like these people, and he's going to kill these people, and he's going to send fire on these people. And quite honestly, I think for, if we're being real honest... I think for some of us, when we read books like Amos, it's a reminder to us why it is that we skip past the Old Testament and try to get right to the New Testament, right? Honestly, anyone have that thought in this room? Any honesty in God's church at all, right? Or maybe I'm the only one. Maybe I'm the only one. But when I read it, I'm like, man, this is hard. It's full of a bunch of stuff I've never heard of. And the only thing that seems real clear is that God's real mad and he's going to kill a bunch of people. And, and it can be hard for us to really, but, but here's what I want you to see, all right? I want you to notice that when you, when you read through this, I want you to see what Amos is doing because what Amos is doing here is actually really, really, really brilliant. So let me, let me show you what I mean. If you have your Bible in front of you, hopefully you have it there in front of you, I want you to look at chapter one and I want you to look down at the beginning of chapter two. Just, and don't even read it, just look at it. Just put it, look at it from a glance. Hold it, hold it up and I just want you to, to glance at chapter one and I want you to flip the page and I want you to glance at the beginning of chapter two, all right? Now, what, we, what you'll probably notice if you didn't already, uh, if you read the book of Amos this week, is that the beginning of chapter 1 into the beginning of chapter 2, so all of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 2, you'll notice that there is almost like, there is almost a rhythm to it. There's almost like a cadence to it. There's different stanzas that you'll see. In fact, some of you have Bibles that they're even, it's even indented that way. Where, where there's these different stanzas that are repeated over and over again. In fact, if you're looking down at, uh, at, at your Bible again, you'll probably notice that over and over again, this phrase shows up. Uh, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of blank, name your city, name the place, even for four, I will not relent. You guys see that? 
You see how that shows up over and over again in chapter one? In fact, from chapter one to chapter two, verse four, this phrase shows up seven times. Seven times God says, this is what the Lord says for three sins of whatever, even for four, I will not relent. He says this over and over and over again. Now, now, in fact, I'm going to show you real quick. Here's the different places. In verse 3, for three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. Verse 6, for three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent. Verse 9, for three sins of Tyre. Verse 11, for three sins of Edom. For 13, uh, verse 13, for three sins of Ammon. Uh, verse 1 in chapter 2, for three sins of Moab. Uh, verse 4 in chapter 2, for three sins of Judah. You notice seven times this mantra repeats. Now, why is that important? Well, well, here's why that's important. This phrase right here was actually considered kind of a common literary tool that prophets used in the Old Testament. In fact, you find this not just in the book of Amos. It's found in other books of the, of the Old Testament as well. And this would have been an idiom. It basically was a way of God saying, enough and more than enough. It's kind of what God was saying. God was saying, I have been patient. I have been kind. I have given ample opportunity for you to change. And he says, and now your sins are just too great and it's been enough and even more than enough. And so now I'm not going to relent. The judgment that's going to happen is imminent. And that's basically what God is saying. The other thing you'll notice in chapter one to chapter, the beginning of chapter two is that as he says this, he's naming different places. Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and Edom and Ammon and Moab and Judah. And now again, to you and I as modern readers, those places might not mean anything. But you got to understand that, that this would have meant something to the hearers, to the Israelites, in which uh, Amos was writing to. In fact, let me, let me just show you. All of these places, what they all have in common is one very important thing, and that's this. Here's, here's a map. These are the seven different places that Amos is announcing judgment on. What they all have in common is that they all sit in a similar region, but they were all neighbors to and enemies of Israel. Every single one of them was a neighboring nation and it was a neighboring community that was an enemy of Israel. Now, let me just ask you again. Remind me, who is the book of Amos written to? Who is it addressed to? To Israel, to the Israelites. When Amos begins his message, how does he start? He says, I have a message for the Israelites. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent. He starts by attacking Israel's enemies is what he does. Now, now you'll even notice in chapter one and chapter two, now unfortunately we don't have time to get too deep in the weeds on this, but if you look at chapter one and chapter two, you will see that, this, that uh, Amos lists very specific sins of each of these enemies. And so in, in each occurrence, he will mention the sins of these different enemies. Now, here's what I want you to know. Like I said, we don't have time to get too deep in the weeds, but what you'll notice when you look at the sins of the different enemies of the Israelites is their sins were, I mean, they were just severe atrocities. Um, I'll, just, I'll just highlight one of them for the sake of time. You'll notice that in verse 3, when, when God begins his, his message, he says, for three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. He mentions this place, Damascus. Damascus, by the way, would have been the capital city of a nation called Aram. Aram was the number one enemy of the Israelites back in this time, number one. And he says, here was their sin, because they threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. And some of us are like, what in the world does that mean? Well, well, let me tell you what that's referring to. What Damascus was notoriously known for was their just brutal acts of violence and torture against their enemies. And they, they were known, for, historically, 
they are known for this. One of the things that they would do, uh, we're told in the Bible, is that they would capture um, prisoners of war, and not just soldiers, not just men. They would capture women and children, and then they would, the Bible says, they would thresh them with sledges having iron teeth. Now, what was that referring to? Well, well, a sledge, a sledge was actually an agricultural tool back in this time, and uh, I'll show you a picture of it. This was what a sledge would look like, and so it actually was like a board, a couple boards of wood, and you would put sharp objects in that wood, and uh, so either rocks or in some cases you would put iron, uh, pieces of iron in the bottom of that, that, that wood. And that was actually used in such a way that after you harvested your, your, your plants, you would put your plants on the ground, and then you would put this board down on top of them, and you would ride it. And so uh, you would have oxen pull this thing, and you, would, and you would, by doing that, you would thresh your grain, and it would separate the grain from the plant. Well, the Bible says that as an act of brutality and as an act of, of, of just inhumane practice, as a power play, uh, these people, the, the people of Damascus, they would do things like this. They would take men, women, and children, and they would thresh them uh, with, this, with the sledge having iron teeth. As a matter of fact, the, the book of 2 Kings even tells us further some of the terrible things that these people would do. Uh, in 2 Kings 8, talking about Damascus, Elijah says, you guys set fire to fortified places. You kill young men with the sword. You dash little children to the ground. And you open up pregnant women. And, and this is referring to the brutalizing. You just got to understand. This is what I want you to understand. When you look at the enemies of Israel and you see the things that they were, what God charges them with, human trafficking, um, crazy, 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 horrendous acts of brutality, the, the stuff that's in this list of the different enemies would have been on par with the brutal acts against humanity that we saw in the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. It'd be like that kind of stuff. Bad, 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 evil, 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 wicked stuff. And so God looks at his enemies and he says, enough and even more than enough, and now I'm going to pronounce judgment on these different enemies right now. Now, here's what I want you to understand, all right? If you were an Israelite and you were hearing this message, Amos comes in and he says, the lion is roaring from Zion. God is like a lion and he's roaring. And the Israelites are, okay, what does God have to say? And then he starts his message and he says, well, let me tell you what God has to say. God is going to destroy this enemy and he's going to destroy this enemy and he's going to destroy this enemy and he's going to destroy this enemy. The Israelites would have been like, yeah, we love this. They were elated. They were like, this is great, man. Preach it, Amos. But I want you to notice what Amos does because what he does next is brilliant. Because Amos goes through seven of the neighboring nations. He goes through seven of Israel's enemies, which some of you might know, the number seven in the Bible is a number of perfection. It's a number of completion. And so when Amos gets to number seven, without a doubt, the Israelites would have thought, okay, yeah, he's, he's, he's just about done with his sermon, right? He's went through seven points. Seven is the number of completion. So now he's wrapping things up. He's about to invite the band up. We're going to pray, and we're going to be dismissed here in just a minute, right? And then we're all going to go to Applebee's or whatever, Rockney's or wherever it is you're going, right? That's what we're going to do, and, and that's what they would have thought. But what Amos does next is really powerful because Amos comes in, and he says, oh, by the way, I have an eighth oracle. I have an eighth pronouncement of judgment. He says, I have one more. And he says, and this one is actually the centerpiece of the rest of the message that I want to give. And who is it? Well, look at, look at chapter 2, verse 6. Look at what God says. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of, say it with me, Israel. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent, is what God says to his people. So you see, and all of a sudden, you see what happens is Amos, 
he no longer points the finger at the enemies of Israel, but now he points at Israel herself. And he says, listen, I have seven pronouncements of judgment against your enemies, and the Israelites would have been great with that, but now he points and he says, and now I have one more judgment, and it's for you, Israel. It's against you, my people. And this, like I said, would have been a shock to God's people. This would have been unexpected to them. It's hard, it's hard for me to explain the brilliance of what God is doing here through his servant Amos. In fact, it's easier for me to show it to you. So let me just show you on a map real quick to show you what God is doing as he's targeting um, Israel. So when he begins his message, he says, for three sins against Damascus, which was Israel's number one enemy, even for four, I will not relent. Then I want you to notice what he does is the next place he, he goes against is Gaza. Gaza was the extreme opposite. It would have been on the southwest side here. And then what he does is he then pronounces judgment on Tyre, which is a little closer. And then on to Edom, and then against Ammon, and then against Moab, and then against Judah, and then finally he targets in on Israel. And do you see what he's doing here? Like a hawk circling his prey. Uh, like a marksman taking aim, and right in the crosshairs of the message that God wants to give is Israel herself. He says, the message that I have is against you. The message I have is against you. And like I said before, this message would have been surprising. This would have been shocking to the Israelite people because they thought that everything was just fine. And so the question is this then. Why was God so frustrated with his people? What was the indictment that he had against them? What was the charge that God had against his people? And here's what it is. Like I said earlier, what we're going to see is that one of God's primary problems with his people was that they had drifted into a domesticating of God. They had drifted into a domestication of God. Now, again, what does that mean? Well, I want you to think about this with me for a minute. All right? I want you to think about the word domesticate because I've been thinking about this for a long time. And the word domesticate is a really interesting word. If you were to go to like dictionary.com or you were to go to like an online dictionary, you would find a definition of domesticate that would probably look something like this. This actually came from an online dictionary. A domesticate means to convert to domestic uses, right? to make it household. It means to tame, it means to tame something. It means to make fit for the life in a household, to adapt so as to be cultivated by and beneficial to human beings. Right? So, so what does it mean to domesticate something? Here's what it means. It means you take something wild and you try to tame it. It means you take something and you try to, you try to adapt it to household uses. It means that you take something and you try to cause it to become beneficial for you. That's what it means to domesticate something. And when God comes to his people and he says, I have an indictment against you, what we're going to find is that they had drifted into, a they, they were attempting to domesticate God. The Israelites fell into a pattern of belief where they started to believe that God existed for them rather than they existing for God. And it is a settled drift that takes place, but it's a drift that they had fallen into. And like I said earlier, I don't believe that this book was just written for God's people back then. I think it's written for God's people today. And you and I, for those of us who follow Christ, we are susceptible to the same type of drift. We are susceptible to drifting into the same thing of domesticating God. So here's what I want to do with the rest of the time that we have. The rest of the time we have, I want to just kind of process through together. How do we, do we do this, and how do we drift into domesticating God? How does this happen? Is it happening? Does it happen to us? And if so, what does that look like? Right, so that's what I want to process through. I want to ask you a few questions for you just to process yourself. If you're a follower of Christ, I would encourage you, maybe even during some of these questions, just to, to pray and talk to God and let him reveal stuff in your heart. 
about whether or not this is a drift that's taken place in your own life. So here's the first question. All right, you guys ready? Here's the first question. How do I know that I've drifted into domesticating God? Here, here's, the first, here's the first way to identify. Ask yourself this question. Do I adapt to God or does he adapt to me? All right, so let me say that again. Do I adapt, do, in my relationship with God, do I expect that he will adapt to me or do I expect that I am the one who needs to adapt to him? Who is it that adapts to who in this relationship? And not just what do I think is the right answer, but what, what, is it, what actually shows up in my life? Because uh, I want you to think about this for a second. All right, let's just go with the domestication analogy again. If you're trying to domesticate an animal, so let's just talk about the pet world, right? If you're, if you're going to take an animal and you're going to try to domesticate it into your home, who is it that you're expecting is going to change? Here's the answer. Not you. You're not the one that changes. You're trying to change that animal to become like you. Who is it that adapts to whose preferences? Who is it who adapts to whose purposes? Who is it that adapts to whose home? Who is it that adapts to, to whose way of doing life? It is always the animal that you're trying to domesticate, right? Think about it. What do we do when we have pets? What, what is it that we do? We try to humanize them. That's what we do. We try to make them less like animals, and we try to make them more like us. We'll get these animals, and we'll give them human names, right? Jack. And I, my parents have a dog named Mary. It has a very human name, right? And, and we'll, we'll, we'll humanize them. We'll give them pet voices. Some, some of us do this. We, we put thoughts in our pets' heads. We try to humanize the way that they are, right? We will um, make them try to look like us. We will bathe them and we will groom them so they smell less like animals, which they are animals. But we want them to smell less like animals because we want them to be more like us. We'll get them little beds. Some people put little sweaters on their animals. I never understood that one. God gave them a sweater, right? And, and they <laughs> will we'll do this whole thing. We'll, we'll train them to do human-like things. We'll train them to speak and to shake. And I've seen pictures of people who have trained their cats to actually use the toilet, which is crazy to me. But it's, what are we doing? We're, we're domesticating them. We're saying, we want you to fit into our life. We want you to become like us. We want you to be less like an animal and more like a human. And, and listen, that might be fine if you're dealing with a pet, but the problem is sometimes we will inadvertently drift into trying to deal with the same way with God. Where, where we look at God and we say, God, we want you to adapt to our way of living. We want you to adapt to our purposes and to our preferences and to our life instead of the other way around. And you see, it's interesting because this is exactly what the Israelites had fallen into. Let, let me show you, if you look at chapter 2, verse 6, I want to show you again what God's charge against the Israelites was. Here's what God says. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. So, so we talked about this last week. One of God's indictments against his people is he says, you don't care about the poor and the needy. And, and we said last week that at this point in Israel's history, they were experiencing a time of just unparalleled affluence. And they, they had become so comfortable in their affluence and so comfortable in their luxury that they, they begin to neglect the needs of the poor and the needy. And God says, that's my indictment against you. He says, they, they trample on the heads of the poor and uh, as on the dust of the ground. They deny justice to the oppressed. Last week, we talked about how the justice system in this time was corrupt. If you were rich, you could buy justice. If you were poor, you were exploited for the sake of the rich. That's the way it worked back in this time. It says in, in, uh, in, verse, uh, in the latter parts of verse 7, father and son use the same girl. That's talking about some weird sexual perversion thing. That God's people who were called by his name 
uh, were, were falling into the same sexual practices of the culture at that time. It says here, it says that the people would lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. That's referring to is that they started worshiping other gods. They started falling into idol worship. They were, they were kind of creating and inventing their own hybrid versions of who they wanted God to be. What, what was God's indictment? What was God's big problem? See, unlike his, the Israelites' enemies, God had a different problem with his people. And here was, here was the centerpiece of his problem. God says, my problem is that you have profaned my name. You have profaned my name. It's actually really interesting. If you look up this word profane in the original language, like if you go back to the Hebrew, you will see that the word profane literally means to defile. Catch this. It means to defile or to make something common. That's what it means to defile something or to, to, to profane something. So what does God say to his people? God says to his people, the Israelites, he says, unlike all of your enemies, you were to be unique. Because you see, God and the Israelites were in something called a covenant relationship. And if you're not familiar with what that means, it means this. It means the Israelites were called by God's name. They were called to represent God's heart and to represent God's character to the world around them. They both, that was both a privilege and it was a responsibility that God gave to his people. And God comes in, he says, here's my issue with you guys. He says, my issue is that you have profaned my name. In other words, he says, you were supposed to become like me. You were supposed to adapt to me. Your character and your sexual practices and your integrity and your heart and your compassion was supposed to adapt to me, not the other way around. I wasn't the one, you made me common. And he says, and in your practices, you made me look like everybody else. There was nothing different about you. And he says, and as a result of that, you have profaned my name. In other words, what he says to the Israelites is he says to them, you've basically treated our relationship like friends with benefits. That's what you've done. You want all the privilege of being in a covenant relationship with me with none of the responsibility of actually bearing my heart to the world and actually displaying my character and displaying my compassion to the world. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves are we domesticating God? The first one is this. Do, in my relationship with God, who adapts to who? Who adapts to who? Do I expect that he is the one who's going to adapt to my lifestyle? Or am I the one that comes to him and says, God, I, I, I want to be called by your name. And so that means that I want to reflect your character. I don't want to reflect your heart. And I want to reflect your desires in this world. I want, I want, when I'm in a relationship with you, I'm the one who needs to change, not Here's the second question. The second question is pretty much like the first one. It's just asked in a different way. Here's a question to ask ourselves. For those of us who follow Christ, do I act as if God exists for me or do I act as if I exist for him? But which one is it, right? In my interactions with God, in my relationship with God, do I act as if God is the one who exists for me or do I act as if I am the one who exists for him? See, there is, this, there is this really subtle drift that can take place, but it is very dangerous, where we can drift into inadvertently beginning to believe that God exists for us, that God exists to make my plans succeed, that God exists to make my kids healthy, that God exists to make my life comfortable and give me the things that I desire and advance my purposes and advance my plans, rather than the other way around, rather than me saying, no, God, I exist for you. I exist to be part of your mission and part of your purposes and I exist to be part of your plans. You see, it's a subtle drift that takes place, but it's something that can happen sometimes. This is what happened with the Israelites. They believed that God existed for them. God is just gonna fight all of our enemies and he's just gonna give us everything that we want and that's what God is gonna be like. He's gonna be kind of like a cosmic genie in the sky that just gives us everything that we desire instead of the other way around. They never thought, no, we exist for him. 
We exist to reflect his heart and to reflect his character to the world that we live in. And you know, one of the ways I think you can identify this, by the way, I, I know I can do this. One of the ways I can identify this one in particular is pay attention to your prayer life. For those of us who pray, just pay attention to what it is that your prayers circle around. If you notice that your prayers just basically circle around your plans and your life and your preferences and your desires, like if our prayers are just like, God, I pray that you'd help me close the deal and God, help me to get the date and God, I pray that the Browns would win this afternoon. Please, God, at least just once this season. You know, God, I pray, I pray that the Indians wouldn't break their streak. God, I pray, I pray that you would keep my kids safe, help them get into the university that I hope they get into. I pray they would get a profession in which they could make enough money so they could live a comfortable lifestyle. God, I pray that you would just keep me safe. God, I pray that you would help me get the house that I want to get, preferably not the one next to the tiger. You know, and we just and, and if you notice that all of your prayers just circle around your plans and your purposes and your desires, if you notice that. Which, by the way, don't hear me. I, I think God wants to know our desires and he wants to know our heart, absolutely. But if, if my prayers never are revolving around, God, what are your purposes for me? What is your plan in this world? What is your mission and how do I join you to do that? How do I mold to serve you, not you mold to serve me? You see, the Israelites had drifted into a domesticating. It's a subtle drift that takes place, but can you guys see it? Man, it happens so subtly, but it's a, there's a big difference between these two things. Here's a follow-up question to that. This might sound like a simple question. I think it's a really important one. One way you can identify if you've drifted into domesticating God is, uh, is this. Has my relationship with God changed my life very much? Ask yourself that. Has, has my relationship, for those of us who follow Christ who are Christians, has my relationship with God, has my Christianity really changed me all that much at all? I think one of the surefire ways you know that you've drifted into a domesticated version of God rather than the real God is that your life hasn't changed all that much. For, for some of us, honestly, if, if we were to look at our life, we'd say, you know what? Honestly, since, ever since I became a Christian or I decided to follow God, nothing has really changed. Uh, my, my priorities in life haven't really changed. My my. My love for people hasn't really changed. My relationships haven't really changed. My sex life hasn't really changed. My financial life hasn't really changed. My habits haven't really changed. The things that I care about haven't really changed. For the most part, the only thing that's changed is if, if you gave me a religious preference card, I would check Christian. That's really what's changed. I think if that's the case, that is a surefire sign that you are not dealing with the real God. You are dealing with a domesticated version of God and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's a concoction of your imagination. See, because when you, when you deal with the real God, the God of the universe, everything in your life must give way to him. All of your passions, all of your priorities are reorient, reoriented in a radical way. See, that take place. Here's the next question for you. Ask this question. Does God ever challenge my preferences, my presuppositions, my prejudices, my political opinions, etc., other things that start with the letter P? I don't know why it is that I decided to go with the alliteration here. I guess I was feeling especially Baptist in that moment, but that's uh, a lot of people. But I think this is a good question right here. Does God ever challenge my preferences, my presuppositions, my prejudices, my political opinions, other things like that? In other words, here's the question, all right? Do, do you find that God always agrees with you? God is just always on my side, man. 
He's, he, he's on my side politically. He's on my side with my preferences. He's on my side with my presuppositions. God just always agrees with everything that I have to say all the time. I think if that's the case, it's probably a good sign that you're dealing with a domesticated version of God rather than the real God. We've said this here before at the Medina East Campus. If you've been coming for a while, you've probably heard me say this, but I think it's worth saying again because it's so important. If you have a friend who never challenges you, who never offends you, who always agrees with you, who always validates your preferences and your political opinions, who's always on your side, you have an imaginary friend. You just do, right? You're not dealing with a real person. You're dealing with a figment of your imagination. And if you have a God who never challenges you, who never offends you, who never, who never confuses you, or who never uh, challenges your preferences, your presuppositions, your prejudices, you are dealing with an imaginary God. Because when you begin to deal with the real God, he will challenge these places. One of the ways that you know that you're dealing with a domesticated God, that you've drifted into this, is that, is that God's word never challenges, it never meddles in your life, that, that, uh, it's, that God's truth is always for someone else, but it's never really for you. That's one way you can, it reminds me of a story I heard, maybe you guys have heard this story about a woman went to a church and she found out that her pastor was going to be preaching against sin. And I guess she was actually really excited about this because she had personally been keeping track of the different sins of the people in the congregation. She was pumped about hearing this message. And so she came in eager. She sat down in the sermon. She had her notebook open. She had her Bible open. She had her pen ready. She was just fired up about this whole thing. So he gets up, pastor gets up, and he says, this morning I want to be preaching about, um, about God and about his heart towards sin. And she's like, amen, this is going to be great. Preach it, you know. And so he starts getting into it, and he says, I want to start by talking about sexual immorality, acts of sexual practice that go against God's desires. And she's like, amen, you know? And, and he's like talking about uh, adultery and pornography and these things that are outside of God's bounds for sexuality. And she's like, preach it, amen, you know? She's going crazy. And he kind of moves on. He says, I also want to talk about, about the corruption that we see today in, 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 uh, in Washington, D.C., and in government officials. And she's like, oh, this, you know, this is awesome. Turns to her neighbor. She's like, he's on fire today. He's on fire, you know, and she's loving it. And, and she keeps going, he keeps preaching, she's all into it. And then finally, towards the end of the message, he says, at the end of the message, he says, I want to just talk about one other sin. He says, I want to talk about judgmentalism and, and how oftentimes we can crave judgment and justice for others, but not grace for ourselves. I want to talk about gossip. And the woman turns to her neighbor and she says, he just needs to mind his own business. <laughs> and uh, it's true, isn't it? It's true. If we don't, there's something about that. If, if, if we don't let God's word meddle in our hearts, if it never challenges me, if it never confronts me, if God's truth is always for someone else, oh, that was a great message. I need to forward that to my mother-in-law. She needs to hear that. You know who needs to hear that sermon? My brother. I'm going to send him a link to it tomorrow, right? It's like, if, it's never, if we never look in the mirror, but we're always looking at, at, through the window of other people and other relationships, I think it's a sign that we might be domesticating God. See, the Israelites had done that. The Israel, when God was, 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 was uh, casting judgment and pronouncing judgment on their enemies, they were on board 100%. But the moment that God says, now I have a problem with you, Israel, you know what the Bible says Israel does? They recoil. They try to, chapter 7, they try to chase Amos out of town. They're like, we do not want to hear your message. Shut up. Get out of here. Selective hearing. We only want to listen to the things that benefit us. We don't want to listen to the things that challenge us. And I think that is a way that we know that we drift into 
a domesticating God. Here's one more question. And I think this is a big one. One of the ways that we know we can drift into this is when I make much of other sins and failures, but I also make little of my own. Um, When I can quickly and easily point out the faults and the failures of other people, and I can recognize those quickly and desire God's justice and judgment for that, but yet for myself, I minimize those things and I desire his grace and mercy for myself. I think that's a sign that maybe we've drifted into a domesticating of God. This is what the Israelites would have done, once again. They would have loved a God who was against their enemies, but it got, when it came to their own sin, they would have said, what, what are you talking about? We're privileged. We're God's people. We deserve grace. We deserve mercy. See, I think this is one of the things that can happen. Is we can drift into this, this mentality where, man, God's judge, judgment and justice is something we crave for others, but God's grace and mercy is something that we crave for ourselves. We can, we can, we can fence God in. Um, I hate that this happens, but I'll just, just tell you that this one in particular, all of them, but this one in particular is one that I can see in my heart. I can see this one in my heart. And there, there are times when I, I can so quickly point out the failures and the faults of other people, and so quickly, especially if it's someone that's hurt me or someone that has offended me in some way, so quickly I will desire God's judgment and God's, and God's justice in that person's life but yet for me, I will minimize my mistakes. I'll minimize my failure, and I want God's grace for me. God, I want your grace. I want your mercy, not for that person. But you see what I've done, though? I, I, have, I have created a jurisdiction of God's grace. and I said, God, I want your grace and mercy to be big enough for me, but small enough to keep them out. And I have fenced God in. There are times, and once again, I, I hate that this is true, but there's times when I'll watch the news or I'll see evil things that happen in the world and there's times that I'll see these evil things that have been done and I'll think to myself, this thought has crossed my mind and these words have come out of my mouth before. I'm not proud of it. But I have looked at people and I've said, man, there is a special place in hell for someone who does something like that. I've thought that, I've said that before when I've seen evil things that have happened in this world. But, 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 but listen, when we say that, do you, do you realize what we just said? Here's what we just said. God, I, I want to limit your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. It needs to be big enough for me, but it needs to be small enough to exclude other people. We put a jurisdiction on God's grace. And, and, and listen, what, one of the surefire signs that we have domesticated God is that we fence him in. We fence him in to benefit us, but also uh, to, 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 to harm those who are outside of our circle of influence, the, the places that we would look at and say, man, that is outside of the jurisdiction of how I want God to work and how I want God to operate. One of, one of the ways we know that we've drifted into this is that we minimize our own sin. When we look at other people, man, that's bad. That's, we look at ours and say, well, that's not that big of a deal. I've never threshed anyone with a sledge with iron teeth, never done that before. So, I mean, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. God, for, of course God will forgive me. Of course he will. My sin's not nearly as big of a deal as the others. That's what the Israelites would have thought. They would have said, man, all these crimes against humanity of our enemies, we've never done anything like that. But God looks and he says, no, I am pronouncing judgment against you too, Israel. And a lot of times what can happen is we can drift into domesticating God by minimizing our sin. Here's something that I was thinking this past week. I think this is actually worth saying. I think if you, if you read the book of Amos this past week, chances are good that maybe this thought crossed your mind. You may have thought, man, why does it seem like in the book of Amos and in the Old Testament in general, it seems like God is really, really, really mad about sin. Like God takes sin real serious. People are dying. God is killing people. There's fire. There's judgment. 
And I think for some of us, we can struggle with that because when you read the New Testament, it looks like God is full of grace and mercy and love. And, and so we look at that and we say, man, what happened? Did like, did like somewhere in the intertestamental period, did God like take anger management courses? Because that would happen, like God just kind of took a chill pill and said, you know what, guys, I've been overreacting a little bit. I'm sorry, the whole sin thing. I've lowered the bar, and, you know, and, and uh, it's okay now. I've, I've, I'm all right. Is that, is that what happened? And did God somehow change his position on sin between the Old and New Testament? And the answer is, of course not. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the same type of, of, of frustration and wrath that God has against human sin in the book of Amos is true today as well. Here's the big difference. The key difference is that now we live in a covenant of grace. And since Christ has come, the Bible says that all of God's wrath and all of God's judgment against sin has been poured out on his son, Jesus Christ. And so does God take sin as seriously? Yes. God has taken sin as seriously and he took sin that seriously on Christ. And so, and so when we minimize our sin, here's what we're doing. We are cheapening God's grace. When we say, ah, oh, God will forgive me, it's not that big of a deal. It's a real big deal. It's a real big deal. It was a costly grace because it cost God his son. And, and, and so one of the ways that we know we've domesticated God is that we minimize our sin and we cheapen God's grace. We, 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 we take his grace for granted and, uh, and it no longer becomes a costly grace in our life. These are a few ways that the Israelites would have drifted into domesticating God. I think these are a few ways that we do it as well. And again, the reason I wanted to show you these questions is really as a way for you to search your own heart because this is a drift, like I said, that can happen a lot of times. We're completely unaware that it happens. And so so what, what we're gonna do here in a minute, the band's gonna come up and they're gonna play. I, I want you guys, as they play and as we do this, I want you just to do work with God. Just talk to God. Ask him, God, would you reveal to me places that maybe I've drifted from you? Would you reveal to me places that maybe I have drifted into domesticating you? And confess that to him. Talk to him about that. Maybe realign your heart with him. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And, uh, and, and when they settle in, I, there's just two other thoughts I want to end with too. And that, that's this. When we talk about this drift, it's a natural drift. Every single one of us are susceptible to this drift. So the question is not just have we drifted, but the question is also how do we safeguard ourselves from this drift? How do we keep ourselves from drifting into a domesticating of God? How do we do that? I think that there's two ways that we can do that. There's two ways that we can keep ourselves from drifting this way. The first one is this. We have to stay close to God's word. We gotta stay close to the Bible. And the reason is because we have to let the Bible inform us and tell us who God is. We need to trust the Bible more than we trust our presuppositions and our suspicions and our, you know, kind of, kind of, uh, uh, assumptions of who we think God is. Oftentimes, we, we will trust our own speculations over the word of God itself. This is, by the way, why it's so important that we read books like Amos. One of the reasons it's so important that we go to a book like Amos is because we're allowing God to speak for himself. We're gonna let God be God. Like, when, when would we ever just say, hey, you know, let's read, let's read a really encouraging book of the Bible. Which one should we read? How about Amos? Like, that would never happen. But it's important it's important that we come to God's word and we let God speak for himself and we understand what God's heart is like, right? So one of the ways that we can keep ourselves from drifting into a domesticating of God is that we can lean hard into God's word and be receptive to what it says about him. Let it change us, not the other way around. We don't come to God's word to validate our opinions and to validate our preferences and to validate our lifestyle. We come to God's word to change those things in us. 
God, change me. I'm open. Show me who you are. Let me be more like you. That's one of the ways. Here's the other way we can do it. Lean into God's word. Lean into God's community. Lean into other people who follow Christ. That is a gift that God has given us. It is a means of his grace. You want to drift into domesticating God? Here is one guaranteed way to do it. Get alone. Follow Jesus alone. Be alone with your presuppositions and your prejudices and your opinions and never be challenged. And if you do that, I guarantee you, you're going to come up with some weird concoction of God that does not even resemble the true God, but it's a domesticated version. It's important that we're in Christian community, that we're part of the body. That's why life groups are important. Because in that, we can challenge each other. We can sharpen each other. Together, we can pursue the real God and allow his power and allow his presence to transform us from the inside out. So as we worship and we sing, would you pray, would you think, would you process with God about some of the things we've talked about today? Let's pray. Well, God, I just want to say thank you for, uh, for your word to us. Thanks for the book of Amos, that you preserved it by uh, your Holy Spirit for, for the purpose uh, that we can read it and come to it today to be changed. God, that is, that is why we come to the Bible. We don't come to the Bible to, to just, you know, validate our opinions. We come to the Bible because we want to be changed want to know you, the real you, not some version of you. Um, God, we want, to, we want to know what you want for our lives. We want to reflect your heart. And so, God, I pray that, uh, that even as a result of what we've heard today, that you would help us just to do some soul searching, to, to look in our own hearts and see, God, what are the ways that we have tried to tame you down? What are the ways that we've tried to fence you in? What are the ways that we have tried to whittle you down to a manageable size? God, forgive us for doing that. Because you can't, you can't be domesticated. It's a joke to think that the God of the universe who created all things can somehow fit um, into, into our mold of who we think you ought to be. That just doesn't work. So God, I pray that you would help us to come humbly and interact with the living God. I ask that you would reveal yourself to us, God. I pray that even as we worship and sing right now, that you would help us to search our own hearts and see places, God, that maybe, that maybe we can change to become more like you. Thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your son who took on all the, the full wrath and the full judgment against sin. And God, that, was not, that is not a cheap act of grace. That was a very costly act of grace. And, and God, I know that you don't, you don't take sin any lighter today than you did then. You just took it on the cross. You took it in Christ. And because of that, Father, I pray uh, that those of us who follow you will be able to respond with just an overflow of thanksgiving for the incredible gift that you've given us in the cross, in Christ. So God, I pray that you would bless us for having what we heard today. Bless us as we go from this place and as we worship and sing. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.